Good morning. My, my name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders for our church. And it's great to have you with us uh, over the internet. Those of you who are with us here and those who are with us uh, in person, we are really glad to have you. Whenever I scoop up leftovers after a meal, I have a chronic habit of dirtying two Tupperware dishes. Do any of you else have this habit, this deficiency in your character? The first dish that I dirty is the one that I want the leftovers to fit into. And the second dish I dirty is the one that they actually fit into. I consistently find myself needing a bigger box than I want. How often do we treat Jesus in a similar way? Where we attempt to squish him into the amount of space that we have decided to grant to him. But he will break free every time and demand that you see him in all his majestic glory. You need a bigger box. Now, to be frank with you all, the the coronavirus has shaken up pretty much all of us in one way or another. Some of you, I'm aware, are primarily concerned in this season with the public and the personal health risks, and that has shaken you up. Others of you, I'm aware, are primarily concerned with the panic that has resulted from the virus. And either way, wherever your concern lies, we must continue to be patient and kind with one another because the foundations of many lives have been shaken these last five months in a way as to expose the ways our Christian lives have had Jesus squished into them. And Jesus has proven himself willing to torch society as we once knew it, if he has to, just to get our attention. And now that he's shown himself to be utterly unpredictable, maybe you're just not sure what to do with him. You see, there is far more life to Jesus than can fit in the limited space we typically grant to him. So you'll need a bigger box. You and I both need to be amazed anew at how feisty, how ferocious, how astonishingly brilliant and beautiful and awe-inspiring this Jesus is is so then we can bow before him as our messiah and our god and we can give him absolutely everything we have to live on even if that happens to be not very much and so this morning as we continue our study of luke's gospel his biography of jesus we'll see that we need a bigger box for our conceptions of Jesus because in Jesus we have a bigger image, a bigger future, a bigger Messiah, and finally a bigger verdict. Let me pray 
as we now come to read his word. Our Father in heaven, please give us eyes to see this Jesus whom you sent, this Jesus who cannot be contained, who cannot be manipulated, who cannot be trapped. Help us to see him and to stand in awe of how ferocious he is, that we might know that this is our Savior and our Master. We pray that you would grant us these eyes to see him in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we come to chapter 20, verse 19 of Luke's narrative of the life of Jesus. We're nearing the end of this story. Jesus, where we are, Jesus has dramatically arrived in Jerusalem to accomplish his work, to establish God's kingdom, and to implement salvation for the world. Now, last week we saw while teaching in the temple, Jesus called himself the cornerstone of God's new building project. These are just the last few verses before this. And he said that he was going to break people. So now they take him up on his offer. The powers that be begin to hurl themselves against this stone in wave after wave of carefully considered entrapment. And every one of their traps that they lay for Jesus, he will turn around to snap back on them. Trap number one, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's take a closer look at what's happening here. Luke provides quite an extended setup to this dialogue. Luke wants to make sure that you know Verse 19, at the beginning of 19, he wants you to know that they knew the story Jesus had just told in the previous passage, a story about a vineyard owner and and tenants who rebelled against the, the owner. They knew that that story was told about them. You see, there is no mystery to this story. There is no secret meaning. There are no hidden layers. They know exactly what's going on. He told this about them, and this is deeply subversive, and they are threatened by this. But Luke also wants us to know at the end of verse 19 that they feared the people. And so because of that, they can't be too overtly antagonistic. 
in verse 20, the first part of the verse, he tells us, Luke tells us that the people coming to Jesus to ask these questions are not sincere, but they are only pretending. That's critical setup because that means, friends, as you read this discussion, you can't treat this like it's a genuine theological debate. It's not. You have to read it for what it is. It's a trap. At the end of verse 20, we're told that the goal of this trap is to deliver him up to the governor. In other words, they want to catch Jesus saying something in public that will enable them to press charges in Roman court. Their hope is in Rome to solve their Jesus problem. So verse 21 then obviously is recounting a pathetic attempt to deceive him with flattery because of the context of the trap. We can interpret it no other way than just as bald flattery. And in verse 22, we finally get to their question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, please remember, as I mentioned, this is not a genuine question. All they want to do is catch Jesus incriminating himself in public. If he says yes to the question, yes, it's lawful to give tribute, then the people here in the temple, the Jewish people will freak out and the scribes can then charge him before the governor with causing riots. If he says no, it's not lawful, then the Romans freak out and the scribes can charge him with fomenting insurrection. See, that's, that's the whole point. It's not a theological debate about how Christians should treat the government. It has nothing to do with that. It's only a trap. Friends, you'll need a bigger box for your conception of Jesus because a lot of people come away from this passage with little more than the truism that Christians ought to pay their taxes. But it's doubtful that that's even what Jesus intended or what Luke intends you to get from this. Look at what Jesus does. Look at how he turns the trap back around to snap at them. Verse 24, he asks them to show him a denarius. You see, he doesn't produce the denarius. He asks them to produce it. By doing this, he proves in front of the whole crowd that the chief priests are in possession of a graven image within the temple precincts. They have violated their own laws and their traditions. Now, I understand that today, and you should understand, we don't charge you with sin if you carry coins to church. We don't. I mean, we charge you with sin for carrying coins at all. I mean, who does that anymore? I'm kidding. No sin there. We don't charge you with sin. But back then, they did. Such images, the image that was engraved on that coin was prohibited by Jewish rabbinic interpretations of the second commandment, that you shall not make graven images. And in addition, Jesus uses this little show-and-tell session to draw a contrast between Caesar and God. You see in verse 25, he says, render to Caesar what he owns or what he deserves, and render to God what he owns or what he deserves. And he sets up this contrast 
in verse 25, which sheds light for us on his question, verse 24, regarding the likeness and inscription. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Because you see here in this coin, we, we know what these coins look like. We archaeologists have dug them up. You have the likeness of Caesar, which they say, yeah, this is Caesar's. And the inscription on it in Latin reads, I'm not going to read it in Latin, but translated to English, it reads Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So this helps you to understand why these coins were typically prohibited in the temple precincts. These coins have inscribed right on them an idolatrous claim. There is the claim on this coin of a rival god, a god who is a rival to Yahweh, and that god is uh, Caesar Tiberius. So Jesus is contrasting Caesar with God. Caesar claims to be the son of God. Son of the divine Augustus. Jesus himself has claimed to be the son of God. They understand that because they understood the parable, the story he just told, where he put himself in the role of the son sent by the owner of the vineyard. And in light of this direct contrast and the electric environment going on here, his, his command to render to Caesar could actually be heard as tremendously subversive. You see, it's not a peaceful instruction to pay your taxes in this environment with the priests carrying on their persons a filthy graven image with an idolatrous inscription inside the temple precincts. This could be heard as a call to resistance. Give Caesar what he deserves. In other words, send him back his stupid idolatrous money. You don't need it. You don't need that. Instead, what do you need? Give to God what he deserves. And what God deserves is your worship. God is worthy of your worship. This temple, earlier in, at the end of chapter 19, we saw that Jesus declared this temple a den of robbers. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. But they have turned it into a den of robbers. And Jesus is here saying, when will you give God the worship that is due to him? When will you render to him, return to him the fruit of the vineyard of Israel, which he entrusted to you for a time? Friends, the point is that instead of relying on Rome embodied in the governor, And relying on Rome to execute justice against Jesus, they ought to be relying on Jesus, the true son of God, the image of the divine king of Israel, to execute justice for the lost sheep of Israel. Yet they are too full of their own power and comfort and nationalism to see any of this. So verse 26, they simply marvel and become silent. They are stuck with their likeness of Caesar and Rome and what Caesar can do for them when what they should be concerned with is the likeness and inscription of God who is standing right there in front of them. 
They need a bigger box to hold this bigger likeness, this bigger image. So friends, we also need a bigger box. We need to have a much bigger image of Jesus who is the very likeness of God. Now, of course, Jesus wants you to pay your taxes and be a good citizen. But that is not the main idea of this passage. Jesus wants your full allegiance to him as the image and likeness of God. Him who is the very son of God, sent by God to proclaim the good news of his glorious new kingdom and the end of the current world order. Does your conception of Jesus have room for someone who is willing to turn everything upside down if he wishes it, for someone who is, who is willing to demand your unswerving allegiance at all times, in all ways, the one who expects your worship and your adoration at all times and in all ways, one who will ask you to spread the news of his kingdom to all those you come in contact with. For some of you, I know this sounds just about right. You're like, yes, that is the Jesus I serve. And that's what I love about this church and I love about our people. Perhaps some of you, however, still need a bigger box. Not only do you have to hold a bigger image, but you have to hold a bigger future. Let's move on. Verses 27 through 40. Trap number two. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For The seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. So in the second uh, trap, we get a different group of people. The first one was the scribes and the chief priests asking about the, the, uh, the tribute. Now we get the Sadducees. This is a different sect of Jewish teachers. This, the Sadducees make up the ruling class. They, they have the majority of uh, seats on the Sanhedrin, which is the, the, the ruling body for the Jews. And they bring to him, 
and and we're told that that they don't even believe that there is such a thing as resurrection they deny the resurrection and they bring to jesus a law from deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 and and in this law uh it's about you know having to marry the widow of of your brother if the brother was childless so that he can have a name for himself and they, they simply use that law to, to create an absurd case study. They want to disprove belief in resurrection. Because if God made this law, he must not have had future resurrection in mind. Because this law doesn't make, it's absurd when you think about the res- resurrection. People coming back from the dead and, and living bodily. Um, so if God made this law, he must not have had a future resurrection in mind. And if he didn't have a future resurrection in mind, there must not be a future resurrection. And this was a serious debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the other major sect that we've seen all throughout Luke. Uh, the Sadducees bring Jesus into this to get his help taking down their opponents who happen to have far more popular support among the crowds. So they want to use Jesus to take them down. But the problem is they need a bigger box for Jesus. He's not their plaything to be manipulated into digging at their religious rivals. And so Jesus, to turn this trap back around to snap at them, he makes two points in response. His first point is that the coming age of resurrection is far more glorious than you can imagine. The coming age of resurrection is far more glorious than you can imagine. In verse 35 he says not even everybody will be worthy to attain to it it's only those who are considered worthy to attain to it verse 36 he says resurrected people cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels with it doesn't mean you become an angel or you sprout wings or anything he just means with respect to immortality you are as immortal as an angel now once you are resurrected and so if they can't die There's no real need for reproduction. If there's no need for reproduction, there's no need for marriage. Seriously, though, think about this. Just envision living in an age where you cannot die. What impact would that have on your life? Imagine the risks, the kind of risks you could take. Imagine the kind of habits you would want to form. Because they're going to be with you for a very long time. Imagine the time you'd have for all the things you can't fit in now. Jesus' first point is that the coming age of resurrection is far more glorious than you can imagine. And his second point he makes is that even Moses showed that the dead are raised. And he does this in verse 37 and 38 god is not god of dead people those who are just gone and they don't exist anymore when he declares himself god of people who have died the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob he's presuming that they will return to life again someday they haven't been resurrected yet but resurrection must be on its way and jesus goes to moses probably because the books of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament, were the only Old Testament books that the Sadducees, this group of people, accepted as authoritative. So he says, even 
the scriptures that you accept as scripture disprove what you have to say. How does this apply for us? Our situation is different. Our thinking is different. But here's the point. It's that you need a bigger box to hold the bigger future that Jesus has in store for you. Just like the Sadducees, they had such a small view of the future. So do we often. It looks different. But friends, how often really do you think about the resurrection and what it will be like and what effect that should have on your life now? For generations, let's be honest, for generations, Christian thinking about the afterlife has been shaped more by Dante Alighieri and John Milton than by the New Testament. And for generations, we have thought of our ultimate hope, the thing that we're looking forward to, the peak, the pinnacle of Christian life, is to die and go to heaven. But that comes from paradise lost. That comes from the divine comedy. That doesn't come from the New Testament. In the New Testament, you need to understand the hope of the Christian is not ultimately to die and go to heaven. Yes, when we die, our spirits will go to be with the Lord for a brief layover. That's what the New Testament says. But the ultimate hope, given in scripture is that heaven will come down to earth once and for all. And those who have died are raised to new bodily life and they live forever on the new heaven and new earth. And what this means is that life on earth matters. Your life on earth is not something to be escaped in favor of something more spiritual and less tangible less physical. We get a start on the resurrection by assisting even now in the invasion of heaven on earth. We do this by shaping the world for God's glory, by developing communities where love of God and neighbor are deeply held values. We do this by resisting injustice, by caring for the disenfranchised. We do this by preaching the message of this coming kingdom to all people everywhere. For those of you who want to follow Jesus, you might still need a bigger box to hold this big of a view of the future. But perhaps some of you don't yet follow Jesus. You still need a, may need a bigger box to contain your concept of a Messiah. That's where Jesus goes next. You need a bigger Messiah. Verses 41 through 44, Jesus now takes initiative. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus takes the initiative to bring the trap on them. They began this line of questioning by trying to prosecute Jesus before the governor, but they end up as the ones who are being prosecuted before the governor of heaven and earth. 
Jesus targets a fundamental concept in Jewish thinking, the Messiah, the Christ. You see, the Messiah is the one who is appointed by God to rescue God's people, to vindicate them before the pagans, and to restore them to their former glory. That's what they're expecting. And we still use the word Messiah today, but usually negatively. We use it for those people who think they are better than others and they think they can improve other people's lives. We say that they have a Messiah complex. Now, the Jews had an idea. They had a concept of the Messiah, that he would be the son of David, which meant that he would sit on David's throne. He would rule like David and he would help to make Israel great again. Through him, everybody brought out their mega hats or mega hats. But Jesus pokes a hole in this conception. The Messiah will not be like David. He must be greater than David. He will do things that David never did. David even calls him Lord in Psalm 110, which Jesus quotes. And if mighty David, your noble hero and ancestor, bows before this Messiah, what do you think that means you ought to do before him? Why would you expect the Messiah to come and protect your safety and keep you in positions of power? You see, they needed a much bigger box to hold their conception of the Messiah. And similarly, many people today need a far bigger box to understand Jesus. Because the way people imagine Jesus today is typically not even close to who he really is. Some people see him as a fictional character. Some people see him as a nice guy. Some people see him as a monster. Let me address each of these. Many people today try to paint Jesus as a figment of the disciples' imagination. They say that we can't trust what the Bible says. They, they made him up centuries later. Maybe he was a real person, but he didn't look anything like this. The problem is that you simply cannot, you can not explain the rise of Christianity and its takeover of the world without concluding that the first generation of Christians really believed that what they said about Jesus really happened. And they believed, not only what they believed, but you have to conclude that the stories they told about Jesus could have very easily been nipped in the bud and overturned with just a smidge of public evidence. You see, Christianity is nearly unique among world religions in that it claims to be rooted in objectively verifiable history. Christianity didn't start because a guy went by himself into a cave and emerged with accounts of visions or visits by angels that, that can't be verified. All you have to do to disprove Christianity is demonstrate that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Everything hinges on that. This historical issue. Some people want to treat Jesus as a figment of the disciples' imagination. Others want to paint Jesus as a nice guy. 
This is another small box for Jesus. That he was like, he was a wise man like Confucius who said some really clever things. Things which were consistent with other religions and other ethical systems in the world. But you see, if this is your conception of Jesus, you need to understand that Jesus claimed to come from God. He had the nerve to say and do things that only God can say and do. He claimed to forgive sins. He called himself, I am one of the names of God from the Old Testament. In Luke, he has described his entry to Jerusalem with the same language the prophets used for God's return to judge the world. Even the angels who appeared on the day of his birth in chapter 2, they called him a savior who is Christ the Lord. And by the words, the Lord, they were referencing Yahweh, the name of God revealed in the Old Testament. So you see, Jesus is like a lion who is untamable and ferocious. He has bared his claws and he is about to pounce on the corrupt leaders of God's own people. And so I'm sorry, but it simply will not do to maintain that he was simply a wise man or some, something like a pre-medieval hippie. And, and finally, this third conception I mentioned, it's increasingly popular to portray Jesus as a monster. People portray Jesus as an anti-Semitic, sexist, intolerant, <clears throat> and especially abusive homophobe whose values and teachings are actually harmful for the world, as though history has since proven him wrong and, and on the wrong side. And I must say that the problem here with this conception of Jesus it's not so much with anything Jesus ever said or did. The problem lies in who we think will sit on the judge's bench. Who will sit at the judge's bench? Because this perspective arises when people believe that they will sit at the bench and sit in judgment over what Jesus has said and done. But that is akin to treating him only like David's son and not as David's Lord. Because when the kings and the intelligentsia of the earth rage against the benevolent monarchy of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus will have the last laugh when he smashes them to pieces. So there is an opportunity even now to bend the knee, to proclaim him as Lord, and to stop twisting his words to fit our own vile and rotten agendas. Friends, I plead with you to find a bigger box to fit a bigger Messiah. And finally, we need a bigger verdict. We need a bigger verdict. Watch how Jesus now puts himself at the judge's bench to pronounce the verdict on his accusers. Verse 45. <clears throat> and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive 
the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus here publicly calls out these scribes. You see in verse 45, in the hearing of all the people, he wants to make sure everybody hears him warn his disciples to avoid them. Because verse 46, they love only their status, their wealth, their position. Verse 47, they will trample on anyone to get there and they will be convicted for it. Theirs is the greater condemnation. And then he looks up. In verse 1 of chapter 21, and we really need to read through the chapter break here. Don't let those large black numbers persuade you to stop reading. They weren't there in the original text. He looks up right after pronouncing this judgment. He looks up and he presents exhibit A to justify his verdict. He watches people, verse 1, putting gifts into the offering box. And he sees the disparity between the wealthy and the widow. And in verse 3, he rules that she has put in more than any of them because, verse 4, it was all she had to live on. And it is critical that we not get sentimental about this story and turn it into a hallmark card about the value of donating whatever little bit you can give. Because do you see Luke's point? Yes, she gave all that she had to live on. Yes, that was more than they gave. But why is that all she had to live on? And why did they have so much more abundance to give? Because look back at verse 47. She has been devoured by the shepherds of Israel. And this must go on no longer. This is the last straw as far as Jesus is concerned. God has returned to his temple like a refiner's fire. He has found it to be a place where there is no prayer, but only robbers who have robbed God of the worship due to him. They are now more focused on handing people over to Caesar than in handing them over to God. They have stopped looking to the future and they've stopped hoping in the resurrection of the dead. They think they can control God's Messiah and make him their plaything. And they have devoured the weakest among God's people for their own personal gain. This must come to an end, all of it. And that is the judgment that will take up next week's passage. Jesus will pronounce final judgment on this old system. But for you and me, friends, we need a bigger box if we are going to follow this Jesus. We must understand how much bigger his verdict is than we typically realize. You see, Jesus didn't come simply to forgive my private sins and make me feel happy on the mountaintop while I sing to him. No, Jesus came to straighten everything out. 
And that must begin with my private sins, but it also involves forgiving our very public sins and the sins of our communities if we turn to him in repentance and faith. You see, there is nothing that this big of a Messiah cannot do. And there is nothing in our lives that is off limits from him. And there is no blessing and there is no resurrection that is outside his authority to grant to us when we hope in him. Friends, do you have a big Jesus? If not, the problem is not with your Jesus. The problem is with the size of the box in which you have tried to squish him. You need a bigger box. Please be astounded along with me at this Jesus, this Messiah, this Lord. Because you know what? Be astounded. We can right now pray to him. And even though he's upholding all things, and he is very busy doing this by the word of his power, he will hear us because we hope in him. And he will exert the full force of his limitless power for our good and for the sake of his kingdom, if we would but ask. And so please ask him with me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray to you. You are our Lord, and we need you now more than ever. We need you to set straight all that has gone wrong. Please make the coronavirus go away. Please restore a semblance of sanity to our culture. Please open deaf ears that people may see you and hear you and bow before you as you proceed subduing all kingdoms of the earth and making them your own kingdom. We praise you and we worship you, Jesus. You are our God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.